On a beautiful run through the park on a pleasant day, you can easily get lost. No, no, no! She didn't kill him. Huh? In your true crime podcast. It was the pool guy. So obvious. Whatever motivates you works for us. It's all about letting your run be your run. And Brooks is here for every runner, doing the research and sweating the details to create gear that works for you. It's your run. Brooks, run happy. My name is Dmitry Popovich, and joining me is my buddy Jack Hahn. Jack, what's going on, man? Tons of hockey to watch. Tons of hockey to watch. Indeed, we're recording this on Sunday morning. Uh, we just got to watch three amazing Game 7s last night. There's two more on the way later today. The plan is we're going to work our, our way through the series that have already ended. So we're going to discuss some of the important takeaways, uh, things we saw in the games, uh, just try to spin it forward to help preview the round two matchups and kind of identify some exploitable strengths and weaknesses that, that people can look out for when they're watching these games. We're, we're not going to talk about the ones that are happening uh, later on tonight, obviously, because by the time people listen, the results of what happened. And so we'll save those for, for later on in the week and I'll cover them uh, in a future podcast. But let's jump right into Oilers Kings. I feel like that's kind of the logical starting point for us because I'm personally still kind of riding this high of just getting to watch what Connor McDavid did last night. Uh, for my money, I'm, I've been watching hockey for a while now. Uh, and, and, you know, just given the circumstances involved, um, I think that's about as well as you can possibly expect an individual player to play. Like from, from really from the third game, from the third period of five, game five on, he pretty much just pitched a, a perfect game over the course of the final seven periods of the series. And what you get is the best player in the world playing at his very best on the biggest stage. And that kind of theater to me is, is what makes sports so cool. So I don't know, not to, not to sound too, uh, too, too corny, but that was, that was about as fun as it gets just watching all that play out. Yeah. And, and it's not as if the Kings played particularly badly. Like I think they played just well enough to look like the Washington generals to McDavid's Harlem Globetrotters, that kind of thing. Well, certainly for the for the series, yeah, game seven got away from them a little bit, especially as that game went along. I think, you know, the dam kind of broke and eventually like it was just it was a bit too overwhelming for them um, in terms of like McDavid was just basically out there every second shift and they just got no real rest or reprieve from it. So I, I don't blame them for it. But you're right, like for the for the entirety of the series, they, they gave about as good of an effort as you can hope for. I mean, look at what they did to try to slow them down, right? They they had Mikey Anderson, who's their best one-on-one defender out there for like 50% of his minutes. They had either Kopitar or Deno on him for nearly 80% of his five-on-five minutes. They threw up this like brick wall in the neutral zone, just trying to get the puck off of his stick whenever they possibly could. And regardless of what they threw at him, like he just problem solved for it on the fly. And I guess, you know, we talk about how it's a team game and, and all that, but at the end of the day, when you have a player like that and he's able to especially play the volume of minutes that he did at that level, it's kind of like the the ultimate deciding factor. Like if you're the Kings, you ultimately just didn't have Connor McDavid and your opponent did. So, so I think it, in the series, if you're, if you're an Orlis fan, it's very encouraging because first of all, in those non McDavid minutes, certainly they were having trouble, but they weren't getting totally dummied. So at least, you know, he like McDavid wasn't going onto the ice and the Oilers, you know, weren't in a spot where they hadn't touched the puck at all. Like certainly, you know, he he's a huge difference maker, but I think that the base is more solid than it used to be. And then the second thing is, I think at the very top of the game, you see how a single elite player can just cancel out or burn through the best thought out defenses. Like, you know, the Kings would sit back into one, three, one. And then uh, I would say probably only maybe four players in the league could, could carry through that. It'd be McDavid, McKinnon, a healthy brain point, and maybe Kaprizov. Like, like I might be missing a couple of guys there, but, but that's probably it. 
Yeah. Well, I want to push back a little bit on the point you made there about not getting completely dummied. I mean, certainly, you know, it wasn't catastrophic, but it, it, it was a bit of a regression from what we'd seen down the stretch under Woodcroft, right? Like I've got some stats here for you. So in McDavid's 125 on five minutes, the Oilers just like completely controlled, right? They were up 11 to four. They had 71% of the expected goals. They had 71% of the high danger chances. Uh, they were just, it, it was just a complete like one-sided affair. In the 213 five on five minutes, he didn't play. Those numbers bumped down to a 44.8% shot share, 43% chance share, 36.2 expected goal share. And they got outscored eight to five, which is is, is close enough, obviously. Like it didn't completely do them in, but it, I guess the the one kind of workaround for that, and I'm not sure how necessarily sustainable it is, keep going into future series, but it was clearly for these final two games was, okay, we're just going to limit the number of times we have to play without McDavid because he's going to play significantly more, right? Like he, he played 51 and a half minutes of the 122 available minutes in the final two games and 45 or so were of them at five on five. Like it was just, it, it was the type of usage you don't see from forwards. Like it was, the equivalent of a workhorse defenseman and for him to, to do it and do it as effectively and maintaining the speed he plays at was, was kind of breathtaking to watch really. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I didn't realize how, I guess it, it was a little bit more lopsided than I expected. I was expecting something along the lines of like, you know, 45 to 48%, that kind of thing. And, and, and I think the other thing is we got to give props to Mike Smith. Like at the start of the series, it was literally giving the puck to the other team for scoring chances. And he actually, what he finished with like 94% save percent or something, something thereabouts. Yeah, certainly he recovered really well from that, from that game one miscue that cost him that game and had two shutouts along the way. Um, I've got a lot of non McDavid stuff here on the Oilers. We'll get to it in a second, I, I'm, but I'm not done. Stop trying to move me away from, from the McDavid content here for a second. I'm going to give you a few more stats. So in those final two games, with him on the ice and he was playing like half the game. The Oilers outscored the Kings six to one and he either scored or set up five of those goals for the series. Uh, he was on the ice for 20 of their 27 overall goals and had uh, 14 points. He had, I was tracking all the games. He had 49 five on five shot assists and he took 45 of his own attempts. So he had 94 shot contributions at five on five in just seven games. And it just kind of shows like how much the puck was running through his stick. But, you know, watching him, I'm not sure if you noticed this, he's been doing this for a while now, but that movie has where he did it to Dano a couple of times where the defender kind of rushes at him. Right. And then they're kind of hoping to, to, to have momentum to kind of match the speed that he's able to accelerate at. And instead he uses that momentum against them to kind of get around them because he, he uses his off arm to sort of staple them on his hip. And then he kind of turns around. It's kind of like, he's like a, like a big guy in the NBA and he's doing like a post move and he just gets around them. And then he gets, has like basically a, a clear pass towards the net. And he didn't score on the series on a goal like that, but he certainly set up a couple of great chances just by doing so. And it made me think like, I don't, I don't know how you really defend him in zone because you can't really just stand there flat footed because then he's going to be able to get around you with that acceleration, but you also can't skate directly at him because he's added this element to his game where he can use that against you now. So it's kind of like this impossible scenario where I don't really know how you do defend him in that sort of in zone setting, obviously on the rush, it's impossible, but even in zone now it's becoming more and more of a problem. Well, I mean, you, you can't really defend him because he, he's such a complete player and, and it's not just the speed and it's not just the hands, but as you said, it's his ability to kind of read the pressure that you're bringing and then rolling off or angling himself in a way where like, it's almost like, you know, mixed martial arts where he's using jujitsu on you and then he, he leaves you kind of in a pretzel and then he, he just skates away. Um, you know, the, the one the one thing that you'll see a lot of teams do is uh, maybe pressure him earlier, kind of either uh, in his zone or in the neutral zone to try to slow him down. Um, but yeah, once he's in your zone, basically all you can do is you can you can hope to waste time and you can hope for maybe a bobble puck and then you attack him two on one and hopefully cause a, a turnover. But he's one of those players that like he'll take whatever defensive plan that you have and just kind of laugh at you know, if he's on his game uh, as he was in game seven, there's not too much you can do. And then uh, maybe the best way that you can kind of, you know, keep his offense off the table is just to try to either pressure him early or 
take over the play when he's not on the ice so that the Oilers have to play catch up all the time. I mean, he basically just, he did everything, right? Like, I think the one knock used to be like, listen, he's clearly the best offensive player in the league, but sometimes defensively you can have little lapses where he's sort of just gliding around or floating around in the in the defensive zone and just kind of waiting for his team to get the puck so that he can quickly break it out. And in this series, like, you saw the defensive engagement get ra- ramped up where he was just into the game off the puck. Like he was using his speed to, to make life hell for opposing puck carriers. He was, you know, stick lifting, taking the puck away, throwing the body around. He was physically asserting himself. Like it was, it was just cool to see, um, you know, that level of, of, of well-roundedness from him. But, you know, you mentioned earlier, we were talking about the, the rest of the Oilers and kind of how they navigate the minutes without him. And, and kind of what I did notice was a bit concerning to me is it felt like they did fall into a lot of the bad habits they'd previously had under Tippett that we'd always be concerned about. And we didn't see it as much in the second half under Woodcroft because they made all these sort of offensive adjustments. But I think the reason, you know, Dry Seidel being hurt obviously uh, affects things and doesn't help matters in terms of those non-McDavid minutes. Um, but to me, what the Kings were doing throughout the, the neutral zone might not have necessarily been sort of groundbreaking or or completely original because we're seeing other teams do it as well to, to high in offenses. But I was pointing this out to you over a text exchange, like how aggressively they were uh, structuring their guys in the, in the neutral zone. Like they have all these quick, uh, quick forwards that are just grinders and are working hard. So they're providing support from the back in terms of the back pressure. And that allowed their defensemen to basically just stand like the strong side guy would just stand at the red line and try to force dump ins whenever he possibly could. And that allowed them to compensate for Alex Edler and Oli Mata, who typically, you know, you'd be concerned about how they're going to handle rush speed, but all of a sudden they basically just have to take two steps forward and force a dump in and not necessarily worry about getting burned by that, that, that carrying ability of the Oilers. And I think that was a big, big, uh, big wrinkle in terms of why they struggled because you're right. Like McDavid, is one of the four or five players in the league who can carry the puck through that type of layering and still get through on the other side with it, but they didn't have anyone else that could do so. And so I'm curious if you're watching and trying to game plan against the Oilers moving forward, that seems like something that, that is, is pretty replicable um, in terms of getting the puck off their stick and forcing them to be much more of a dump and chase team, as opposed to the kind of uh, fluid attacking transition team they were in the second half of the season. So let, let's kind of look at things from a defensive perspective for a second. And one thing that I guess surprised me this year is you're seeing way more teams play the 1-3-1 trap as opposed to regular season where teams are mostly either 1-2-2 or 1-1-3. And, and what, what, what the 1-3-1 is, is, is essentially it, it's a zone defense where guys are just standing in spots to force dump ins as opposed to a more fluid defense where you're trying to attach to speed and maybe problem solve guys one-on-one and, you know, try to use your defensive stick to force dump ins or force turnovers. So, you know, whether you watch LA, whether you watch Washington, whether even you watch Tampa at times against Toronto against a skilled offensive team, if you have guys who are able to get back and clog the neutral zone, it creates a lot of problems, maybe not for the top guys, but certainly for a lot of the kind of middle six, the bottom six forwards. Um, generally speaking, they're going to be dumping the puck. And then the advantage of a one three one is the, the, the last man back has a couple of steps uh, to kind of turn and then go retrieve that dump. In. So it's kind of designed to counter a dump and chase kind of play because the last man back is like, by the time the puck leaves the four checkers hands, um, he's already kind of halfway back, um, almost down to his own goal line, that kind of thing. Well, there's that, but I think also like, if you think about it, if you play it, play out the sequence even further, right? Like if you force them to just keep playing that dump and chase type of game, there's going to be times where, you know, the, the, the first guys into the zone, you know, establish, you know, contact, make a good hit, uh, affect the retrieval by the defenseman and you get the puck back. But by that point, offensively, what happens most times? All right, you get the puck back behind the net along the boards. It kind of gets rimmed back out, cycled back up to the point. And especially for a team like the Oilers who don't have a bunch of defensemen who, you know, have like skill and poise and are looking to get into the middle of the ice and distribute and, and make creative plays. They're just getting that back and then they're just hammering it back towards the net. And that's how they get into this sort of uh, negative feedback loop or kind of this like this, this problematic 
way of playing offensively at five on five, because all of a sudden you're taking the puck out of your best players, your forwards sticks, and you're basically just having, you know, your defensemen take low percentage shots from the corners of the ice from far out that aren't going to go in. And so even if you don't recover it as a defensive team there, you're kind of tricking them in a way into taking very suboptimal shots when they do get the puck. Yeah. And, and it's kind of, it's a very, uh, it's a very sneaky way to play because as you said, it's almost like it has this, it creates this feedback loop where the other team starts playing uh, dumber offense. And the other thing that happens is the typical coaching adjustment to a team that's trapping against you is first of all, you're going to play more dumb and chase because you don't want to force players at the offensive blue line. Fine. And then the second thing is, is that you want to uh, maybe go for these early stretch passes to catch the defensive team before they can set their trap. And the problem with that sort of stretch play is who are going to be your best players at executing them? Well, it's going to be your players who are quick up the ice and who have the, the poise and the skill on the puck to catch a pass with their back to the opposing team's net and then somehow turn and, and get an entry off of that. So it's going to be your McDavid's, it's going to be your dry sidles, your Caprizov's, you know, your high end skill players. Um, and then if you try to extrapolate that and you have your bottom six players attempt those plays a lot, a lot of times they're not going to be able to handle the pass. So it's going to be kind of these broken plays, these dump and chases, maybe even these turnovers that lead to counterattack opportunities. So, uh, you know, you were saying how the Oilers were falling back into old habits. Well, you know, going up before LA can get set is a great game plan if McDavid has a has a step. But if it's, uh, you know, you name it, like one of their bottom six forwards doing that, it's probably going to be knifed into the offensive zone and then they're going to spend the rest of the shift chasing. Yeah, certainly. And, and, you know, regardless of who they play around to, whether it's the Flames or the Stars, I think if, you know, those teams are paying attention to this, they're, they're going to be similarly structured in the neutral zone. And and it'll be, I'm going to be curious to see whether the Oilers are able to make some sort of an adjustment there to kind of prevent themselves from falling into those habits. Um, is there anything else you have on this series? Like, I, I have a, a point that I wanted to make about Duncan Keith because he was really bad as this series went along, like they overcame it, but if they keep playing this much, I do think it's going to come back to bite them. It's he might honestly be for my money, the worst rush defender in the league at this point. And I was tracking this, the Kings just absolutely feasted on him. They, they targeted him 49 times on entries of five on five. They successfully carried it in 39 times on those. Um, so they, they weren't even like being forced to dump it in, weren't creating any turnovers. They were just basically, you know, clearly targeting him and then trying to create off the rush in that regard. And against a team that has better, better finishers, especially if they play the flames around two. that, I think that's going to become a real weakness. So I guess the one solution to that is just to play Brett Kulak more because he was fantastic uh, by comparison, but for whatever reason, they seem to be unwilling to do so. Like, so, well, I guess we'll see how that plays out. Well, the, the reason is Kulak is not the toughest player to play against in the front of the net. He's not a habitual cross checker. He doesn't have a lot of dirtiness in his game. Whereas I think Keith is sneaky dirty in that sense, but certainly, you know, whoever uh, the Oilers end up playing the second round, uh, we might see a healthy dose of Rupe hints against uh, Keith off the rush or uh, Johnny Gaudreau against yeah. Keith off the rush or Manjapani or you name it. Like that's going to be interesting to say the least. I don't know, man. Kulak is, is such a superior player. Like he got targeted 36 times and he gave up 10 carries on those. Like he, the game he had playing with Cody Cece on the top pair when Darnell Nurse was suspended was, was fantastic. He was great all series. He, you're right in front of the net, maybe not as much so, but especially in terms of defending the rush, like his, his kind of controlled aggression makes him such a valuable player for this team. And uh, I don't know, man, he, with Keith, like he, my analogy is he kind of looks like one of those older quarterbacks in the NFL that's taken a few too many hits and kind of starts getting happy feet in the pocket. Like the second they start feeling any pressure, and even if there's no one actually around and they've got plenty of time to make a play. And like you see him make these decisions with the puck where it's just needlessly turning it over. And I, I think that's something the Oilers need to get away from. Like they got through this series, but in terms of like trying to optimize their performance, I think that's a, that's a big area that they can improve. So something to watch for. Um, 
Was there anything from the Kings that you wanted to note here? Like Dano was obviously awesome. Um, any other players you kind of wanted to to give a bit of spotlight to here before we move on to another series? I mean, look, like the Kings, they've had a really good season. Even before uh, this season, I was kind of tabbing them as a team on the rise. I think they're ahead of schedule. It's super impressive what they've been able to do with the right side that that was Matt Roy uh, and then some combination of Sean Dersey, Troy Stetcher, and Jordan Spence down the stretch. Mm-hmm. So this team is... This team is on its way up. They got a lot, a lot of good players coming. I think at some point they're going to have to start playing with a little bit bit more nuance off the rush, maybe use more speed differentials or change of size to open things up. Right now it's very much kind of a boot strength, you know, crash the net kind of team. So I'm looking forward to seeing how their style of play evolves. I think, um, like, I've long admired Marco Sturm as an assistant coach, like even going back to his time coaching the German national team, I thought they did some really interesting things offensively. So uh, looking forward to seeing how this team evolves next year. I really liked what I saw from Mikey Anderson in this series. He's a player who every time you look at his regular season defensive metrics, they'd pop up, pop off the page and you'd be like, oh, I wonder what's going on here. But just watching him like his, his ability to handle speed was was very impressive to me. So certainly, like this this the structure they were playing uh, helped for that. But he did really well. And then I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if he becomes kind of a trendy hipster pick for like, ooh, this is a, this is an underrated player that you should be paying attention to moving forward. So uh, kind of wanted to get ahead of that. Um, should we do Panthers Capitals here just because it's sort of similar in terms of what was happening offense versus defense. And then we can do Leafs lightning after that. Really similar uh, series in terms of the dynamics. Uh, obviously Carter Verhage is no Connor McDavid, but he was sort of the catalyst that really opened the floodgates uh, for the Panthers, especially off the rush. He did a lot of the similar things that McDavid would do. Obviously he's not quite as good, but um, just having a player who's able to beat guys one-on-one and beat guys wide, you see how valuable that becomes against a team that's really tight across the neutral zone. Uh, the other thing that I noticed watching that series is we know that Florida is one of the best teams in the league at creating shots in the ozone and then you know creating these, sh- these shoot and retrieve opportunities. And I thought Washington did something really neat to counter that, which is... Um, we know that Florida likes to get into this two, three with the, the third forward, very, very high in the zone and Washington kind of, they accepted that matchup and they instead concentrated their defensive pressure, uh, below the goal line. So anytime the puck went down under the goal line, it would systematically outnumber, um, the Panthers three against two. So the center will come down low and then help the D's fight for the puck and more often than not they would actually get the puck back and then uh be on their way out um out of the zone and that was really frustrating for florida because i think during the regular season they were used to winning a lot of cheap pucks down low because teams were playing them more man on man um so i think you know if if our tampa uh playing the next round this is something that i look at uh, especially you know already you know, with the the amount of large and imposing defensemen that that the Lightnings have, if you win a lot of these down low pucks against Florida, you can really cut down their zone time. You can really um, reduce a lot of their offensive volume. I mean, similar to what we were saying with the Kings and the Oilers, though. Like, I, I think the the big thing here, especially in the first like three, maybe even the, the game four, like the first like four games or so, like what the Capitals did to slow them down through the neutral zone where they were basically just like they had five guys above the pocket at pretty much all times. And they were playing so disciplined in that regard. And it was just really limiting the number of times the Panthers could conceivably get out in transition and actually have odd man rush scenarios because like they were always back and they were always kind of trying to bump up into this wall. And I guess it brought up an interesting question for me for the Panthers because, or, or, or any teams in general in this regard, like when you have, so much regular season success. And we talked on an, on an earlier show, you and I, a couple months ago, maybe about like how they were having this historic offensive season and how they were doing so in a bunch of different ways, but particularly in terms of being this kind of run and gun team that just absolutely kills you off of the rush. Like when the game did slow down or when, when you were facing a team 
up to seven times in a series where they could specifically game plan for that and potentially just key in on like trying to slow down that one area of yours, how willing they'd be able to adjust, whether they could have enough versatility to win in different ways. And obviously eventually they did, but it really seemed like for those first couple of games, they were basically just trying to repeatedly jam the square peg into a round hole. Like it, it seemed like they, they didn't, they were just trying to play that way, but there was nothing there. And it seemed like at some point they kind of realized that they just had to maybe dump the puck in a little more and go ahead and try and retrieve it instead, as opposed to just skating it through because there just weren't, weren't really lanes to do so. Also, is it true that Florida didn't score a power play goal the entire series? That sounds uh, crazy to me. Not only is that true, they they had 18 opportunities in 34 and a half minutes on the power play, and they scored zero goals on 20 shots. And you know, if you if you're looking at at matchups in round two, like you know they're going against a Lightning team that is going to score a bunch of their own power play goals. Mm-hmm. So, especially after what they did to them last postseason, that would be something that I'd be watching for certainly. So I, I have a theory on that, which may be completely wrong, but, but maybe something worth trying for the Panthers. So against, um, so for teams like the Lightning or for Boston, teams with really historically very strong first power plays, um, the, the problem with those units is once you're able to win the first faceoff and get the clear, they're way less effective. Like if we're talking about like the Bergeron unit in uh in Boston or, you know, the, the brain point snap coast Kucherov unit in Tampa, they're not as good breaking out of their zone and then getting the entry and then a setup than if they win the face off and just stay in the offensive zone the whole time. Right. And the thing with Florida is, you know, they got Claude Giroux at the, at the deadline and Claude Giroux is, is an elite face off guy. So what I've been seeing from them is they want Claude Giroux to, to win the face off from the right side and then they're looking to set up off of that. The problem with that approach in Florida, in my mind, is that Florida's best players are left-handed. So if you're winning a face-off on the right side, you don't have a one-timer uh, usually to a right-handed shooter from that side of the ice. Now, it could be Reinhardt or it could be Ekblad if they're playing Ekblad at the point. Um, however, um, what they've been doing before Giroux is they have Barkov trying to win that face off on the left side and then feeding one of their many, you know, left-handed shooters going left to right. So maybe if, um, you know, e- either they can have Giroud try to win the face off on his offside, which is the left dot, or maybe even go back to Barkov and try to run it that way. But I, I, I think maybe it's something worth trying to, to go away from having Giroud take the first face off on the right. Yeah, that's interesting. Definitely something to think about. Um, was there anything else about sort of what the Capitals did to the Panthers here? Because certainly I didn't give them much of a chance heading into the series. I just thought the talent disparity would be too much. And, and eventually talent did win out, but, you know, they gave them a pretty good scare there. Like they were three minutes away from going up 3-1 in the series. They had a 3-0 lead in game five. Game six was one in overtime and the Caps had a lead in the third period, even in that game. Like this was, this was pretty tight. And, and, you know, you could glass half full say, listen, this happens in the postseason. It was good for the the Panthers to, to get a, you know, an experience like this under their belt and still find a way to persevere and, and resourcefully create offense and enough to win, especially like they're, you know, regardless of what they do on the power play, and if they make any adjustments, they're not going to go over 18 again, regardless. So they're going to get some easier sources of offense in round two and it'll even itself out. Or do you view it from the perspective of like, it's kind of alarming that a team that that was so inferior in terms of talent was able to game plan in a way that, that really gave them this, this much trouble for a series of games before they were ultimately able to, to find a way out of it. For, for me, the big takeaway on Washington's end is it goes to show how longevity or how keeping the same core together for many years is underrated. Like, you know, we, we kind of had written them off before they won their cup, right? Because they struggle for years to convert in the playoffs. And then so, all of a sudden they win this cup out of nowhere at the tail end of, of their cycle. And then before the series against Florida, we've all pretty much written them off because they're old and slow and they're not as good. Uh, they're not as good as the Panthers who've been historically dominant in the regular season, but then they give them a good run for their money. So, you know, I, I think it's, 
Uh, certainly there's not a lot of positives for teams like Toronto who are expected to go deep, but then lose early. But I think there's some merit in having patience in this league, uh, even though, you know, paradoxically, we're more and more in a hurry to try to exploit players on the ELCs. But I think there's value in keeping a core together for a long time because you never know when they're going to pop and when things are going to fall in place. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, Okay, well, let's take a quick break here. um, And then we're going to do Leafs Lightning and Avalanche Blues on uh, on the other side of things. Recognized employees with Custom Inc. Show customer appreciation with Custom Inc. Outfit your teams with Custom Inc. Easily add your logo to your favorite products and brands at custominc.com. Make Custom Inc. your custom gear partner with great customer service, quality products, and all-in pricing, along with personalized help when you need it and an easy-to-use website when you don't. All backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Do it all today at custominc.com. Champions aren't born, they're made. And the secret to make your business reign supreme, Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Forget the off-season work, Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling warm-ups or wall hangers, it's time to start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build the relationships that create die-hard fans. Shopify fields all the sales channels to grow a winning business from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Shopify is a secret to becoming a business champion by making it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere, taking the guesswork out of selling. When you're ready to take your winning idea to the world, team up with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash bluewire, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash bluewire to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash bluewire. While we take a break here during the PDO cast, let me tell you a little bit about HelloFresh, which is sponsoring today's episode. With HelloFresh, you get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. The recipes are easy enough for even someone as useless as myself in the kitchen to follow thanks to their well-laid-out steps and pictures that help guide you along the way. They offer 50 unique menu and market items to choose from each week, which provides you with plenty of variety and options for whatever your dietary preferences may be. Most importantly, HelloFresh is a massive time saver for your busy day-to-day life. Not only does it cut out stressful meal planning and grocery store trips, but it also allows you to cut back on the amount of time you're actually needing to spend in the kitchen with meals that are ready in 30 minutes or less. Plus, They've also got quick and easy meals, which include 20-minute recipes that have low prep and easy cleanup options, which provide an even faster route to putting food on your table. That's why they make cooking easy, fun, and affordable, and that's why it's America's number one meal kit. If you're like me, that's a massive perk. Most nights, I'm busy glued to my laptop trying to keep up with six different games that are all happening at the same time because the NHL insists on having puck drops that are all happening at once and... I don't know why they keep doing it, but it keeps me really busy and it doesn't give me a lot of free time to be messing around in the kitchen or trying to figure out what I'm going to have for dinner that night. So being able to cook up a quick and easy meal that's both filling and delicious is such a luxury for me to be able to enjoy and just makes my life that much easier. If that sounds interesting to you and you want to get in on the fun, just go to HelloFresh.com slash PDOcast16 and use the promo code PDOcast16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. That's HelloFresh.com slash PDOcast16 and make sure you let them know we sent you by using the code PDOcast16 to redeem the offer they've currently got going on. Now let's get back to the show. All right, let's jump back in. Let's do let's do Leafs Lightning. So... You know, it honestly, I feel like a series doesn't get tighter than this, right? It, it, one goal separated the two teams, both in terms of the actual game seven, but also for the full series cumulatively. Expected goals according to natural statric were 50.7 to 49.3% for the Leafs. But when you score and venue adjusted, it was 50.3 to 49.7 for the Lightning. Like it was a, a coin flip in terms of the 50 50 uh, regard in pretty much every sense. Which which way do you want to take this? What what are your what are your takeaways from this? Uh, whether it's from the game seven or for the full series, and let's uh, let's fully unpack it. So um, 
you know how how we really enjoyed uh, geeking out about Dallas's Pavelski line, right? Mm-hmm. How Dallas was able to extend Pavelski's career by <clears throat> putting him with Jason Robertson, who's who's a great dual threat as either a shooter or a passer, and also Rupe Hintz, who's a guy with elite speed. Um, the number one thing I would say the Leafs lacked uh, this playoff was one more player in their top six who could really make plays. You know, uh, the fifth and sixth player on their top two lines were Michael Bunting and Alex Kerfoot, you know, kind of these complementary players. And, you know, the big guys showed up, but then the complementary players didn't quite chip in enough to kind of uh, put the Leafs over the edge. And it's not to disparage them because I thought that the entire team played very well against a very tough opponent, but that's what they were missing. I mean, it's a bit of a double-edged sword for me here for them, right? Like on the one hand, I thought just watching all seven of those games, they were pretty clearly the better team in that series. Like they dictated play. They had a massive speed advantage. It felt like they were routinely creating better chances with ease compared to like how the Lightning had to kind of resourcefully and opportunistically manufacture theirs. Uh, but at the same time, I guess you could argue that you know, the realization of that only makes losing yet another uh, round one series in this fashion that much harder to swallow. I, I guess the one thing and the only thing I, I do really feel strongly about here is that like you can just completely disregard anyone that says that, you know, this time after this loss, you have to make drastic changes to this team because like, look, their their top players were the, clearly their best players and they played a hell of a series like Marner and Matthews, we can get into it, but they were fantastic every time they were on the ice. They made a bunch of spirited comebacks when it looked like they could easily fade uh, in a couple games there. And they didn't win. The goal is obviously to win. And so they fell short of that goal. But I don't know, just pretending like there's something fundamentally rotten in this in the core of this team, it just seems so disingenuous to me. And it just seems like if you're arguing that you're, you're really only pushing an agenda because they basically lost the coin flip to to a really good team. And that's not making an excuse. That's kind of the reality of the postseason. So if this series had happened in the Eastern Conference Finals and they lost in this regard, this wouldn't be an issue for anyone. But just because it happened in round one again and with all the historical baggage, it's a big talking point. But for me, like I think that perspective is really important. Yeah, and, and if you look at Toronto's top players, you see them get better in their own ways. Like... Obviously, Matthews is coming off this amazing goal-scoring season, but during the regular season, he averaged about one hit per game. And then he realized midway through the series that in order to create more space for himself, he had to lay the body a little bit more to get the defenders thinking. And then he was averaging, I think, around five hits a game in the second half of the series. So he made that adjustment and he was very effective. Mitch Marner, uh, last playoffs against Montreal, you, you saw him get a little bit tight and forcing passes and not moving uh, well enough kind of off the catch. And this year, it, it was completely different. He, he's, he's become a much more dynamic player and a much more um, you know, fearless player going to traffic. Uh, Tavares was quiet to start the series, but then you see him kind of working his magic down low in the net area. You know, he had that goal that got waved off that was... Uh, kind of a vintage John Tavares goal. Uh, you know, Nylander is is going to the net and, and you know, he's continuing to do these William Nylander things that we we love so much. So these players are getting better. Like they're, they're you know, they're playing a market that has so much pressure baked in, but you see them elevate their games in small ways. So, so like you got to take that as encouraging. I mean, well, let's take those one at a time. Matthews was a force physically like I, I i i don't know he obviously doesn't win in 100 percent of times but i feel like when he goes into a crowd for a loose puck or if he's kind of standing along the boards and the opponent's trying to get it past him like i just feel like he's going to come away with it 100 percent of the time um there's a few things I'd, I'd quibble with like i feel like formation wise did it strike you a bit odd that yeah i know they were moving around a little bit but like they spent large stretches on their power play of having them in kind of this unnatural position where he couldn't one time it. And so like they'd get it to him and then he'd have to hesitate a little bit. And by that time, Tampa Bay's penalty killers were so good at, at recovering and getting set. And at that point it just became so much less feasible that he was going to beat them with a shot. And it was weird to me that they kept doing that as opposed to just setting up that natural one timer uh, more frequently. What, what do you think about that? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, if if you look at uh, hockey viz, uh, like the the visualization with the, the power play uh, heat maps, uh, you saw that the lightning lightning did a really good job of accessing the slot, whereas the Leafs did their shots were more concentrated on the flanks. The one fascinating thing I noticed in Game Seven, and and probably not before the early in the series, but only in Game Seven, was Marner was playing the bumper spot. Uh, instead of Tavares, so Tavares was down low, and then Nylander was on the le- was on the left flank, Marner in the middle, and then Matthews on the right in his one timer spot. And this was it, it's something I've advocated for even back when I was working for the Leafs. I thought Marner uh, would be better used in the middle of the ice, where he can kind of read the pressure and play between checks. But the the player never really was comfortable doing that because he always liked to have. Uh, kind of the defensive pressure to one side instead of playing in the middle of that PK box. But you saw him try to do it in game seven. And um, who knows, like maybe if if they were able to create that look early in the series, it would have made a difference. But just the fact that he felt comfortable to slide in there, like in game seven, again, shows some growth in his game. Yeah, I guess. Okay, so the one quibble for me with their approach, um, you know, throughout the series, I, th- I thought they did a really good job of, of attacking with speed and kind of taking advantage of, of, of the speed advantage that they did have on the, on this lightning team. Right. And in game seven, um, especially when you got into the third period, obviously part, this was partly due to the fact that the lightning, like after the first couple minutes of that third period for the final 17 or 18 minutes, just like, we're not trying to, to score or do anything. They were basically just hanging on kind of like a prevent defense. So they were just staying back and not even, you know, getting out of position at all. But it kind of struck me like how often, like how much the visually Toronto's offense changed with regards to like, they went from being this free flowing team that was just constantly getting the puck in the zone to all of a sudden having to just repeatedly, dump it in and then waste time grinding along the boards, trying to dig it out. And you saw that, especially in the final couple of minutes where they wasted so much valuable time doing so. And even Matthews himself had to basically just dump it in and hope for a teammate to crash out and try to retrieve it. And that's fine for most players, but especially in that spot uh, for a player of that caliber, like that, that, that seems suboptimal to me, like board battles against Tampa Bay's best players when it's Hedman and Chernak and, and so on and so forth, probably isn't how you want to be trying to, to generate a goal when, the clock is ticking down and your season's on the line. So I think when they look back at that, I'm not sure what they could have done differently in that regard because Tampa Bay was just basically loading up on the blue line and forcing to dump it in. But that clearly, like it just looked so different than basically the rest of the series did for them offensively. So I, I would agree with that. I, I thought that they were maybe a bit conservative with their tactics uh, when they were trailing. Um Late in that game seven, we didn't see a lot of them using the width of the ice in transition. Um, you know, they were instead trying to go north south, trying to dump the puck in and, and try to, you know, forecheck and get it back. Whereas in the regular season, the, the best way to beat a, a 1 1 3 like Tampa plays is you find a change of sides early. So around either your blue line or the red line, and then you attack the weak side with speed. Whereas down the stretch, you saw Toronto trying to force the puck through the strong side a lot. And then, as you mentioned, uh, very late in the game, Matthews had a look to go one-on-one to carry into the offensive zone. Instead, he just kind of spotted the puck uh, cross corner and basically hoped for bunting to go and and chase that puck down. And um, when I think about that sequence, I can't help but think about uh, Nick Suzuki. Because in the regular season, when Nick Suzuki was struggling, he would often make these sort of conservative plays uh, to not turn the puck over. So as soon as you would pressure him at the offensive blue line, he would just kind of chip the puck in and try to get around you and, and go chase it down. Whereas when St. Louis came in as coach, um, when he started putting up more points, you saw him look for these one-on-ones because if you want to be an elite player in the NHL offensively, you got to do things that kind of break the rules once in a while, right? Because 
Certainly, if you're a bottom six player, if you're a middle six player, you shouldn't go one-on-one at the line. But if you're a superstar of the game, one of the very best in the league, which Matthews is, uh, the chips are down. There's a minute left in a, in a must-win game. Uh, you should go for that one-on-one. Okay. Even if it's Victor Hedman, even, even if it's, you know, Ryan McDonough or Eric Chernak, whatever. Um, and, and even if uh, Matthews is not quite as good as McDavid is, well, McDavid is going to take that puck and, and trust himself to make a play. Whereas you saw Matthews, he deferred in that moment. And I think if he had to do it again, he might've uh, done it differently. Yeah. I think aside from, there was like one Mikheyev solo rush there where he got a really good chance with speed. But other than that, in the third period, like it was, it, it looked much different. I mean, and, 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 you know, kudos to Tampa Bay there because I think a lot has been made of Vasilevsky's stats in this series and, you know, his stats now in these closeout games over the past three years where he just has like ridiculous, you know, save percentage goals against winning all of them, of course. And he was excellent in this game seven. He made a bunch of big stops. He did everything he needed to, no question about it. But part of the secret sauce during this entire run of excellence for the Lightning has been like when it's mattered most, they've actually been able to kind of clamp down defensively and basically lock you down. And as this series was going along, I whether it was because the light, the leaf speed and depth was just too much for them or because they were running on fumes and just didn't have it in them this year. I just thought, you know, that they wouldn't be able to sort of replicate that kind of an effort in this type of setting and, and really shut them down. And you, when you look through the first 40 minutes of this game, the Leafs, I believe had like 1.5 expected goals and like 14 total shots on net in those first 40 minutes. And it, so you did kind of get a little bit, a glimpse of that. It wasn't obviously, um, necessarily as dominant as the past couple of years, but you did see that kind of DNA for the lightning of being able to, in a, in a setting like this to just, you know, they got a couple goals and then they like really just totally refined their defensive game. Yeah. And, and I think the mindset against Florida next round is more of the same. It's, uh, you know, certainly they're looking to play well, but they're also looking to maybe drag their opponents down to, to their level, so to speak, because, you know, Tampa is not the fastest or the, even the most skilled team anymore. Uh, so they're looking to maybe have Florida kind of, you know, slow them down and, and jam them up like they did against Toronto. So the game plan is going to be the same. Uh, for me, the biggest question is Braden Point because he's such a big part of, of what they do. And without Point, uh, that really weakens their top six. And then Kucherov is going to have to do a lot more. In Toronto, you saw him kind of be a little bit tentative or a little bit slow at times. You saw him uh, delaying instead of carrying the puck through pressure, uh, trying to you know find somebody else who's cutting through the middle of the ice with speed. Um, so he's going to have to be, I think... Uh, you know, he's going to have to be better. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it sucks seeing point get hurt the way he did in game seven, right? Like he only scored the one five on five goal in this series. Ironically, it was in that game seven winner that he didn't actually put into the, into the net himself, but I thought he was just immense this series where, you know, they split him up from Gutrov and stamp goes to get that kind of matchup versatility versus Matthews and Marner with him and Sorelli. And they really took it to him a couple of games there in, in Tampa Bay. And he was creating so much just single-handedly with his motor that, that, this team didn't have that much of otherwise. And so that's obviously, I mean, it's not really innovative analysis to say that's going to be irreplaceable, but uh, hopefully he'll be able to play. I thought Hedman as well. Um, it was kind of cool seeing him at this level again, you know, last postseason, he was clearly physically hampered and he wasn't himself and he was having to kind of pick his spots more. And in this series, you got to see kind of the full dose of how he can be the ultimate system breaker at both ends, right? Like offensively, He's with the stretch passes he's creating, but he's also like in game four, I think their first goal before it became a blowout, he like crashes down the wall to keep the puck in the puck moves around. And then he like flashes across the street crease and basically acts as like a screener on Stamkos' shot to take away Campbell's eyes. Defensively, they were using him and Chernak in the home games pretty much exclusively against the Matthews line. And they were dominating in those minutes. So you kind of got the full uh, the full repertoire of what Hedman's capable of in this series and kind of what uh, a singularly impactful player you can be. Yeah, well, I, you know what? Uh, what you can do is in future Tampa games, you can flip a coin and then what if it lands head, then Hedman's going to be on the ice. He's going to be playing every single, like every other shift. Like that's how Tampa's going to go far is to really ride him and hope that he can, uh, he, 
he, he can do it. Okay. I've got, I've got one more note on this series that I noticed in these games and I'll kind of, it's kind of spin forward to, to this round two matchup against the Panthers. So there was an interesting cat and mouse game that I noticed where I think the lightning by design, they started off this series, like they'd have the puck deep in the offensive zone and then they would look to get it up to the point and make something happen with it. Right. And the Leafs were pressuring the points so aggressively. Like they were, they were sending their wingers up high and they were basically looking to leak out at the first sign of a turnover. And they were creating a lot of those turnovers. They were either blocking the shot and then going and retrieving it in the neutral zone, or um, they were pressuring the lightning defensemen. And, you know, all of a sudden they're kind of flat footed. They've got a bo- like a bobbling puck coming their way. They're trying to do something with it. And it felt like every time there was like a 50, 50 chance that it would result in a great scoring chance for the Leafs in a matter of seconds, because they were just like, they were just on it. They were pressuring them so much. They were really just all over it. And if I'm the Panthers and I'm watching that, that's something that like, I'm really trying to take and incorporate as much as I can in this matchup. Like, especially coming away from, from that round one series against the Capitals where they struggled so much to get out and transition and create um, odd man opportunities it feels like we'll see how the lightning play it. Of course, I'm sure they're going to just try to grind and pound it again and keep the puck deep in the zone for extended stretches. But as soon as it comes out to the point, like the Panthers just need to be all over that and trying to pressure it as much as possible. And they certainly have the personnel to do so. Like they have a a ton of speed up front. Yeah. um, So the Panthers, they they play slightly different D zone. They play more of a, a, of a zone defense, which means that you don't have the winger necessarily assigned to cover that defenseman um on the minus side sometimes that means that they're going to be late flexing out to to create that high turnover but on the plus side anytime the puck is going to be around the half wall they can two on one that puck right so you know i think tampa knows exactly what florida is looking to do and it'll be interesting to see how that how that evolves because uh, you you are right if you're if you're able to cause a high D zone turnover that can be an excellent way to create off the rush. Yeah, no, certainly. Well, especially I mean we saw that a ton in, in this series, so uh, that's something I'd be trying to do. Okay, um, let's end with uh, with Blues Abs, which is one of the few round two matchups that we already know is happening. It's it's a repeat of last year's round one series at the avalanche swept, but I think you can kind of throw that out the window because this is an entirely different blues team, not only in terms of personnel, but in terms of tactics and, and the way they've played this season. Um, what interests you with this matchup, whether it's something you saw in round one from either of these two teams or just kind of how they figure to, to line up and play against each other in this one. Um, well, I think in, in, in the first round, if you just look at the possession stats, you would have expected Minnesota to come out on top, whether if you look at the regular season or even you know the, the first round stats. Uh, St. Louis was just really opportunistic. Uh, from, from my money, they're actually one of the best passing teams in the league. Um, the, the I problem think they're with the, that, best, the best passing okay. team. Okay, <laughs> so, so there you go. The, the problem with St. Louis is that it doesn't translate into dominant offensive uh, shot volumes because they're not quite as good at getting up ice uh, and also at retrieving second opportunities. So, I, so Colorado is going to be a faster team. They're going to be a better transition team, but expect the Blues to, you know, keep uh, threading these high danger passes, but also to have their D's up in the rush to try to help their forwards get to the offensive zone. Yeah, I think it's partly that. I think also part of it is is, is it's by design, right? Like it, they're they're clearly passing up potential shots, like good ones, for what they hope to be great ones. And I think that's obviously impacting the volume. And you see it on the power play, especially where I think they were second in the regular season in goals per hour, and then in round one they scored eight times in forty minutes or so against the Wild, and and really that was a big difference maker for them. And you see that approach born out there, where they'll patiently wait you out, they'll move the puck around the zone. And they're looking for one of two things. And they're th- basically the two most dangerous offensive plays you can get from an end zone setting. They're either looking to go east-west across the slot line to either a Perron one-timer or to Tarasenko, and he'll more and more likely wrist it. Or they set up that play where they get the puck to the goal line, and then they quickly one-touch it out to the inner slot in front of the net to either Ryan O'Reilly or Brendan Saad. And now I think every team in the league knows that Ideally, the offensive team is going to be trying to do that because those are the two most dangerous plays in that situation. But it's remarkable how they they clearly have the passing talent, but also 
they're just really good for whatever reason at waiting it out. And then once there's like a slight opening and the opposing penalty kill slips up, they'll make it happen. And so I think that's something to certainly watch in this matchup. Well, I was muted for a second there, but the solution against that is um, if you're Devon Taves, if you're Kale McCarr, you got to kill their, uh, their exits. You got to kill their transition plays and then counterattack off of that. Uh, if you're a Sam Gerrard, you try to, you know, keep the play up ice as well, because you know, that down low and in front of the net, you're going to be in trouble against the O'Reilly's of the world. Um, and then if you're Josh Manson, then try to get in as many sneaky net front cross checks as you can to kind of stem the tide in terms of physicality. So, uh, I, as I said, I'm really interested to see how Gerard and Manson specifically defend the Blues, uh, but also, uh, you know, this may be a long series, and maybe we might see a little bit of uh, Jack Johnson action. Who knows? Well, I continue to believe the one way to attack the Avalanche is by targeting that pairing. Like you're not going to win the minutes versus Taze and McCarr. Um, Bowen Byram looked fantastic in round one, especially defensively, um, in terms of the way he was defending the rush, and so. Listen, in, in 50 minutes in round one, uh, the Avalanche got outscored three to nothing with Gerard and Manson on the ice, and they got outshot and outchanced. And that was an extension of what we saw from them in the 100 or so minutes they played in the regular season. So um, we'll see how that goes and whether the Blues are able to exploit that. But if you're game planning, that's pretty clearly like one of the few relative weak links that you can identify on this team. But I'm not sure how much it's going to matter because like what we saw from... Taze Makar in round one, but also obviously all year and even last year. Like you and I did a full podcast on this uh, last postseason, I believe. But the way they attack and transition and how they control the game in that regard and how sort of easily they're able to jumpstart the offense is remarkable to me. Like it's it's so fun to watch that play they run constantly, especially in the second period where the puck kind of goes in the neutral zone along the board, it's near the benches. The other team's trying to decide whether they can squeeze in a change or not. And then McCarr just picks it up. Taves sprints up the ice on the weak side. McCarr hits him with a pass. And then either it's a Taves just absolute bomb as he's striding in out the rush or he waits for a trailer. Like they do that at least a couple times a game and create great chances every single time. And I'm not sure, like the other team is obviously aware of it, but once you get into the game and it's moving fast and you just had a minute and a half shift and your legs are burning and you're trying to get off the ice, I'm not sure what you can do to try to stop that. Uh, kind of like a survival instinct kicks in, but they exploit that about as well as anyone I've ever seen. So uh, I'm going to make a, maybe a not so bold prediction, but I think the St. Louis Blues are going to try to play a one through one trap in game one and see how that goes. Mm. They haven't done it, but I, but, but I'm expecting it. And so then what do you think the, the abs are going to do to compensate for that? Acknowledging that they might be one of the few teams that actually might have more than one guy who can single-handedly break that. Like, like I would include Makar into the few uh, players that you mentioned earlier that they can sort of weave in and out of traffic successfully on a consistent basis. So what would you do then if you're the abs and you see that? And, and this may be the title of this podcast, but it would be let Nate cook, <laughs> give him the pill, let him cook. Yeah. Well, that's not a bad strategy. He he's pretty good when he's flying. So, um, I would, I would like to see that. Um, all right. Well, I think that's going to be it for today's show, Jack. Is there anything else that you wanted to, to touch on while we're here or, or do you think we cover it all? No, uh, that's good. Uh, and as usual, best way to keep up with my work, Twitter, J H A N H K Y. Lots of playoff content. Looking forward to what what's going to happen the, the rest of the way. Cool, man. Well, uh, thanks for taking the time. Keep watching these games, and we will certainly check back in with you sometime on this, down the road during this postseason. So uh, until then, take care. Sounds good. Take care. All right. That is going to be it for today's episode of the Hockey PDO Cast. As always, thank you for listening. Hopefully you enjoyed the the chat Jack and I had breaking down some of these round one matchups. Um, we will certainly hope to do more in-series shows in round two. It'll be uh, hopefully easier to pull off once the nightly schedule chills out a bit. And, you know, there's only two games on every night and we can kind of actually key in on them a bit more and have more time to discuss them in a timely manner. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, in the meantime, 
if you want to help us out, you can do so by leaving a rating and review. Uh, a lot of you have done so already. Each one's greatly appreciated. Thank you. If you have, if you haven't yet, please consider doing so. It, it's it's incredibly uh, easy to do. Just smash that five star button, and uh, and that's that. So um, yeah, we'll be back here soon with with some more content. We're gonna we're gonna do some shows um, covering the the series that we haven't talked about yet, just because uh, it was still uncertain on, on terms of who's gonna be playing who. So look forward to that. Uh, stay glued to this feed and. Uh, um, yeah, that's going to be it for today. Uh, so enjoy these games and we'll be back soon. The Hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO cast.